This is Danny from Alpa 111. This episode features stems from our songs You and Yours, Hoblast, and Skinny Soul Stealing. It also features a remix of the song Mao's Poem by Great Varelli off of the Season 3 soundtrack to the podcast Blowback. In the second half, we're joined by Aaron and Carly of the podcast Hit Factory. They came on to discuss the album Ghost Team by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. I hope you enjoy.
Carly, Aaron, what'd you guys think? Well, first and foremost, thank you, Danny and Jean, for having us on and sharing uh, this music with us. I had a lot of thoughts as I was going through this. I and forgive me, I don't I don't know exactly where the the track listing breaks up exactly on on some of the songs. I feel like they kind of flow pretty organically together in certain points, and I kind of get the movements. Um, but I really like the vocals on the first one. Um, Danny, I assume that's you singing. Uh, yeah, that's correct. You have kind of like a like an Angus from Liars, like falsetto kind of thing going on in that one that I kind of dug. So that was a lot of fun. I think I think the one that was most rewarding to me was the the second track. That's where, you know, I, I know that you've been speaking with Carly and and kind of saw some of the you know things about about your work and that you know Nick is is a, a big influence for you and Scott Walker as well. And I got a lot of Scott in that second one for sure that's where it started to kind of work for me where i was like oh okay i, I see this you know the, the the drones and and this kind of like darkness here and and the the vocal intonation uh yeah i i really like that i have a question actually danny which is where does this fall within sort of like the broader arc of music you've been making because i found myself kind of wanting to understand like at what point in your journey this particular set of songs lives? I think these, Gene, you can correct me on these, but these, other than one, so one of the songs in there is uh, actually a great Ferrelli piece. Um, that's Brendan from Blowback. Mm-hmm. He had Mao's poem on the season three soundtrack, and that's the the really nice... Um, I think it's a, I think it's violins and theremin that's going through there, and a, huh. like a, a haunting bass that cuts through. It's, it's a gorgeous piece. But other than that, these songs, I think we started working on them around late 2020, early 2021. Just by circumstance, it's a pandemic record. As much as I hate that term, <laughs> but uh, these were recorded in isolation from each other, except for one piece of music. It's towards the middle and. This episode was mostly edited by Gene because like Gene and I have sent a lot of music back and forth and I would edit and cut things up. Uh, Gene has a more cinematic and what's what's the term like? Amateur. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there's this like beautiful bleakness that Gene has been able to pull out of these tracks when I, when taking isolated points like a, a shaker or or a drum beat and applying a certain level of you know equalization or, or delay and um, really getting to the heart of what emotion carries the song even if there is something political behind it the one with the thundering uh, toms the thundering drums yes is one called you and yours and we included a version of it um, in the previous batch of episodes. I think it was, it's a lyric that I'm kind of proud of. I, I don't know if it's actually in the episode. It's been a couple of weeks since I listened to it like thoughtfully, but it was the city sleeps for you felt, um, it felt like a summary of, you know, my experience of living in a big city. I know um, Toronto is much different from LA or New York. It's New York without all the stuff, but <laughs> even just the idea of like, I moved here because I needed work to pay off a student loan and every job that I could get easily and actually start paying rent and paying down a student loan was not paying nearly enough. And that blocked my ability to sleep. It was, uh, it got in the way of, you know, a healthy life. It was like the emotional terror over needing to make financial, you know, commitments and trying to live even just a normal life, not necessarily fulfilling, but contented life was constantly at, especially at that time, uh, 
in conflict. And I think that's kind of what I got out of that piece. Yeah, the falsetto, I think uh, Vic, our, you know, our drummer when we play live, actually recorded the bass and they sent it to us um, early in the pandemic. And I think after some months, I, I heard like a, a portis head kind of element to the bass playing, like, a, like something off of Dummy that hadn't been scratched up enough or thrown under a car. And just having that kind of drowned out lengthy kind of drum phrase that then was, you know, and that, that was programmed, that was a beat machine, but... Um, we decided to incorporate actual live drums, which has been incredibly difficult to do on a amateur level. I just went for it at a rehearsal studio with shitty mics and got Vic to play a number of takes on the drums that we then looped in and out, uh, applied several guitar pedal effects to, like sent them out of the computer and then back in using the pedal board and wrote like eight or nine improvised guitar solos which we then subbed in and out which i don't think is necessarily answering your question it's more of a chronological <laughs> response no it actually is it's I very think, thorough so a couple of things that you said that i want to zero in on um one i think the you know the sort of like derogatory term of pandemic art is maybe one that's been earned but i also think that like it's a very real manifestation of the trauma response that a lot of people were having to what was going on at the time. And I think that the generative sort of creative energy that came out of that trauma response has led to some really interesting and beautiful, if not, you know, messy um, and still beautiful in their messiness, music and movies and writing. And so like, I don't like bristle at that categorization because I think it's really important to acknowledge that we as a collective, we're all going through something like we still are, um, frankly, and that what's deeply human is to try to like make sense of that in some way. And that's what art is for a lot of people. So I asked about the trajectory of where this music fell in your journey as an artist because I had an inkling that it was something that like came about in the last couple years. And when you mentioned that the music and a lot of Jean's editing is focused more on evoking a feeling and less on like, you know, the 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 technical elements or the structure of a story that you're telling, it made me think about Ghost Teen because I think the same can be said about that album um, and about a, a lot of what Nick and, and the Bad Seeds are, are trying to do with that music, which is get you to feel something and not necessarily like tell you a nice little story um, that fits neatly in a song. And then the other thing that I wanted to call out, I'll caveat all of this by saying that like, I, I love music. I listen to it constantly and I have a lot of thoughts on it, but I'm not an expert in the lingo. <laughs> um, the most sort of musician-y I've ever been in my life was when I played flute for my school band. So that, <laughs> that, that gives you some background for like, the, my depth of knowledge here um, in terms of like technical terms. So excuse me if I'm not if I'm not calling something the appropriate name. What I really loved about what you shared with us, the music you sent to us is that impetus you're talking about to move to a sensorial level of experience with the music and less to like a I'm listening for words and I'm I'm on this narrative track is something that the music, automatically sort of evokes I didn't even I sort of switched into that mode uh without being conscious of it and then when you articulated it just now I was like oh yeah that is how I was listening to that music and I think 
what is interesting for me is that like my comfort zone musically is blues, R&B, hip hop, soul, funk. Like that's where I spend most of my time and energy musically. And when I venture afield into other places, I sometimes have a harder time with music that has a lot of noise. And I'm not talking about noise music because I know that's its own genre. Um, But I just mean like literally music that has a lot of layers of stuff going on. And part of that has to do with hearing loss in my family and sort of like how what frequencies I hear things at. And part of it has to do with the type of music I like, which is generally stuff that is a little bit more like uh, clear and direct and has like one or two things coming at you. And that's not to say that I don't appreciate really like Um, complicated production I do but sometimes with music that has a lot of production and a lot of sort of layers of sound I feel kind of distance from it it feels inaccessible to me and I didn't feel that way listening to your music and I think that it's because you are operating on a frequency that I know really well which is an emotive one Um, and that is transcendent above actual layers of sound if that makes sense Totally. Yeah. That's also incredibly flattering. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad. It's the truth. Carly and I definitely have different modes and speeds when it comes to like, I think our preferred listening. And I think the stuff that that you all are are producing is definitely more uh, in my wheelhouse. I'll actually call it a sandbox because as Carly was saying, there's difficulty or impenetrability like on the surface of things. But like when I listen to music like yours, when I listen to stuff that's more like kind of ambient drone noise sort of stuff, I, I actually have historically referred to it as kind of like playing in a sandbox because what you're doing is sifting through a lot of layers of particulate matter for those like little nuggets. And sometimes you find a dog turd, but sometimes you find like a really cool shiny toy, right? Uh, and and like that's the fun of listening to that kind of thing where you're, you're sort of parsing out and you're homing in on particular sounds or, or particular instrumentation, like a, a, a melody that's buried 10 or 12 layers deep. And that's really rewarding for me. So that was that was a lot of fun listening to your music. And, you know, I, I, the best compliment I think I can pay it is that it started to like expand my palette immediately to like wanting to go and re-listen to all of the stuff that I love in that in that field. You know, like, you know, we've already talked, Nick, we, you mentioned Portishead, Scott Walker, all of those. Sun, even, even a little bit there. I was like, I, I, I love that kind of like droney, you know, like darker kind of like metal goth kind of noise stuff. But a lot of electronic stuff that I, I really like as well kind of came about in my listening where I was like, oh, this is making me want to like go and dig into my like Tim Hecker records or my Ben Frost records or, or things like that. Just stuff that pummels me a little bit. And uh, that also leaves me like kind of a wash in this sort of sense of exploration musically. So uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I'm always awkward as shit responding to compliments. So uh, I'll just say this oh, you're again. talking you're, to the right you're people. You're in good company there. <laughs> Thank you. I'm always just like, shut up, be quiet. I'm like screaming at people as they're saying nice things to me. It's not, it's not good. <laughs> um, I wanted to quickly throw it over to Jean just to give you a chance to kind of talk about the approach you took in, in your, your initial run editing it. Those music piece. I know it was a little while ago. So just what you remember. To be honest, I, I don't, um, and the way I'm feeling today, I don't see like I'm going to uh, find my memories on, on that. Uh, probably just as amateur as I normally do, and uh, pick a few things that I really like and try to uh, kind of run with that and blend things together in a way that shouldn't make sense. And then, I don't know, 
it's it's nice working with those types of pieces that are sort of malleable enough that you can fit one into another although it you know it, it shouldn't really um but no uh, that, that's about it because <laughs> i remember i sent you a folder and then i guess you had access to the other one that had brendan's material do you remember what kind of inspired you to grab that that remix of uh of mao yeah it was uh the equivalent of uh writer's block <laughs> and i wasn't really sure what to do and so i was just going through the folders and i heard that i, I think i asked you permission or maybe i just did it i can't remember you just but, did it. uh okay that, that that seems more likely but it just, it just seemed to work really well almost like a polar opposite of the rest of the music i just i felt like it fit in nicely and um out of necessity we did get brendan's approval afterwards by the way i sent it to him just to oh, good. know for the show <laughs> we can just steal his shit and not ask <laughs> gene can i ask a question when you're like producing or when, when you're editing these things and putting them together are you listening to anything in particular as like a reference point or are you actively avoiding it to try to avoid like good those question. influences bleeding into the way that you approach the sound well i mean i i don't hear lyrics very well so i mean i my whole life I've, you know, I, I've heard words that weren't in the songs or whatever. So I don't focus too much on lyrics themselves. So I, I kind of treat vocals as just another instrument. And yeah, there's there's a lot of really poetic lyrics and, and I appreciate those, but it's not my main focus. So I kind of get a vibe, whatever the sound is, the instruments and the vocals or, or whatever's happening and try to kind of skew that for my own purposes. But yeah, it doesn't really matter if it, you know, tempo or it's just uh, sort of the overall tone with all the things that somebody that's properly trained in music would probably say, don't do it that way. Um, you know, because I, I don't really care for a lot of music. So um, I don't think of it in, in a musical way, I think, but uh, just try to kind of paint a picture that feels a little bit like something is happening, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. That's my curse as well. I, I don't listen or like key into lyrics very much. I key into like melodies and specifically like the sound of the vocals. Carly, I think is is the opposite. We'll be listening to music, even stuff that like I put on and Carly will compliment or like remark upon like the vocals or the lyrics or something and say like, oh, I really like that lyric. I'm like, I honestly don't even know what they just, I have no idea what. I've been listening to that song for years and I could not tell you what the lyrics of the song are. I couldn't sing along to it beyond like the noises. I'm glad this came up actually because it was something I wanted to just discuss with Ghostine. I think it's sort of related to how I listened to that album mm -hmm. and and how I think Nick wants people to listen to that album if I can be so presumptuous. But Gene, when you're talking about thinking of vocals as like another instrument and like the pieces of what the lyrics are actually saying are less important to you than like the sound and the sort of tone of what what is coming out is the opposite uh, of how I listen to music. As Aaron said, like I'm really focused on lyrics. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that my dad was deaf. Um, and like I grew up having to really make sure that the words that I was saying to him, like he understood. Um, and so language is like really important to me. So when I listen to music, I'm really focused on the language. But there are pieces of music that contain lyrics that manage to force me into that like 
I'm less fixated on the lyrics and I'm more fixated on the sound of the song and the feeling that that sound is like engendering in me. And as I said, that happened when I was listening to some of the tracks that you sent our way. And it also happens for me with Ghost Teen very specifically, despite the fact that Nick is a an incredible poet and I want to hear and pay attention to every single word he utters and sings. I think what is remarkable about the music that you all are making and and how you're editing Gene and what Nick and the Bad Seeds are doing and a lot of other really talented musicians is that they're able to transcend my like very dogged impulse to hyper fixate on lyrics and force me into a place where I am less concerned with what's being said and more sort of taking it in as a whole and experiencing the music that way. And I think artists that can do that well, especially for people like me who don't tend to listen to music that way, um, that's kind of like what art is about, right? It's like about pushing you into this like transcendent space that is that goes beyond the box that you experience life in on a regular basis. My dad was a huge, is a huge um, Leonard Cohen head, and like one of the oldest records I have is this beat up uh, songs of Leonard Cohen that he got when he was like 20 or, or maybe younger um, that his friends would try and steal from him. My first experience with Nick Cave that I can remember, if it wasn't that Johnny Cash appearance that he did on like the American recordings. And I was like, this guy isn't Johnny Cash. Who the fuck is this? It was, uh, you know, it was in the days of LimeWire and I was attempting to, just before university, you know, download a whole bunch of Cohen and, and other artists. And there was one that was, as LimeWire did, mislabel things. It was titled, uh, or it was accredited to Leonard Cohen and Kate Bush. And it was actually Where the Wild Roses Grow by uh, by Nick Cave and Kylie Minogue, um, which I think was like <laughs> in the 90s, a starting point for a lot of people. Like he's been, like he said that people would hear that song and would then go and buy murder ballads and be uh, frightfully disappointed with the <laughs> violent nature of the rest <laughs> of the album. Don't you know that I'll crawl over 50 good pushes just to get to one fat boy's asshole? But um, I wanted to just, um, you know, pull the question when I reached out to you and asked about a record. What, uh, which ones did you think about before Ghosting? Was it always Ghosting? And and why did you want to talk about it? I can answer that. Um, <laughs> I mentioned this off off air, but I had always found Nick Cave's music historically like pretty impenetrable and uh and alienating i think that's a draw for a lot of people that really love him um and i've always like admired him as an artist and known him to be talented but was just like this guy is inaccessible to me um and so was never like super into a lot of a lot of his catalog so if we're going back to the concept of necessity ghost teen is the album that I know the the most and the best um, because it's it was really my first entry point into him where I actually like listened to a full album and not like heard a single and was like, oh, I kind of like that or oh, that's like not for me, um, but like digested the album whole. So when you came to me and said Nick Cave, I was like, that's really the only one I could talk about um, with any sort of uh, with any sort of like, you know, semblance of of coherence. But I also think that 
in listening to Ghost Teen, even though you don't need to be familiar with his cosmology in order to experience that album for everything that it is, it did like serve as a conduit for me to go back into some of his other um, other work and like find traces of it or at least find things that felt like they got him here. Um, and especially knowing what has happened to him, you know, extra textually uh, with the loss of his now two sons, but his first son at the time, Arthur, um, when he was writing Ghost Teen, that just made me more curious about how personal experiences might have informed other aspects of his music that came before that I had just dismissed were not there um, because I thought he was doing something different than what he what I know now that he was doing. Um, So that's that's why I picked Ghost Teen. And then I'll talk a little bit more about this later. But when I first listened to the record my father was still alive I had experience with grief in other aspects of my life but in this conversation us planning to do this I've come back to ghost teen and my relationship with it has evolved even further now that my dad has passed um and I think that that's something that's really beautiful about music just sort of generally speaking that's well done but something I really think is important about what Nick Cave is doing in Ghost Teen because yes it is an album about grief to a certain extent but I think that's like really underselling it and what I think is more important about the album is that the album itself can evolve over time the way your experience with grief and loss does Um, So coming back to it two, three years later and like remembering the songs that I really gravitated towards and being like, oh, I'm actually like really, really gravitating towards this song now. And I wonder why that is. Um, I think that's the sign of not only a really good artist, but of like music and art that is very connected to humanity because it's less like this fits in a spreadsheet or like can be AI programmed, which is another thing we should talk about later. Um, And it's more about like a really complicated, messy experience of being alive. Now, I might just be misinterpreting it, but it looks almost like Aaron might have something to add. is it just the way you hold the mic or <laughs> uh this is just the way I, I hold the mic honestly he yeah usually has something to add I, I mean i always do I, I will say you know like when when carly mentioned you know like oh uh you know danny that, that you had approached and had asked about nick cave I, I think it was an obvious choice collectively for us to, to talk about ghost scene because i i think you know i, I also knew this about carly that uh nick cave's sort of uh canon his oeuvre uh was not something that she was i think holistically familiar with but that this album like really resonated with both of us but I, I think you and I are are in similar places I I came to Nick Cave yeah around the age of like 17 18 um I actually think the first thing of his I listened to was Abattoir Blues nice uh, and it was like shortly before Dig Lazarus Dig had come out. So it was like in that period, I was pretty into like 90s and like aughts Nick for a little bit and then started working backwards and just have kind of followed the trajectory of his career over like the late period here. I, I guess that like trilogy that I would call it of like Push the Sky Away and Skeleton Tree and then this one Ghosting. Um, I, I really think like Grinderman especially is like something that he uses to like open up a vein and like scratch a particular kind of rock and roll itch that used to be kind of like the hedonistic backbone of his music and now is just like ghosting has uh, what like one song in it maybe and it's the probably like the last 
one hollywood that actually has like anything that you could even call like a pulsing like rhythm or drum or beat like to any it. sort of anger <laughs> yeah um so it, it's interesting the way he's kind of like exercised that element of his songwriting a little bit in favor of something a little bit more uh ruminative and quieter but also still just kind of massive in its approach like i i think dig lazarus dig i think came out later that year where i torrented his entire discography and you know bootlegs and um <laughs> got really into the proposition soundtrack and um which yeah. is i think I, I think stands as his best one just uh just as a little aside um the little experiments that him and warren worked on throughout that i think inform a lot of what went to at least um push the sky away if not into the others but um skeleton tree and and the movie um one more time once more theme. uh one more time I one think, more time yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah the andrew dominic uh, directed piece was pretty informative on this musical project before i'd met gene and uh and and vic it was very raw and like like his live performance visceral but in a, a much more abstract way and i think that carried over into ghosting in a neat way like uh, most obviously in hollywood and in leviathan the more groove or you know like vibe based songs but um i mean like like anyone else i approach music on a on an emotional level maybe not necessarily on uh, the way i used to when i listened to the national and i was like oh pretty things make you cry <laughs> now it's a lot more like I, I need to have some sort of transformative response or connection to it like when i took my dad to see him before ghost teen came out uh he was playing at uh, scotia bank in toronto which is like our large stadiums that the leafs and the raptors play at as well i think it was the first time he had played at a venue that size in canada and uh my dad was 67 at the time and usually when he would go to shows he would just get the cheap seats you know somewhere where he can sit down comfortably because he, he just wanted to enjoy the songs it didn't really matter if he could see it and I bought the tickets this time and was like, no, we're going to we're going to be uncomfortable for a while because you need to be up front for this. He was nervous the whole time. He was like, I I think after a little bit, son, I'm going to want to go in the back and just, you know, stand out of the crowd. But um, when they started playing Lover Man, I think, and like Cave just did a jump over this massive sort of moat between the stage and the audience is when my dad just like grabbed my arm. and was like, this is so fucking cool, like in his eyes. (laughs) Um, It was was something that I I never had specifically with my dad. Like, I enjoyed a lot of shit with him, you know, usually in the home or in movie theater environments. Just um, this was actually getting him out of his comfort zone and into somewhere that that felt very rewarding. Like, to this day, he'll, like, bring him up and, like, that Nick Cave is something else. And that was, yeah, that was still, that was an extension of the Skeleton Tree tour where he moved from being, uh, still being somewhat secluded from his audience and from interviewers to being much more open. I think it was during that tour that he had started the Red Hand uh, Files and the Q&As mm-hmm. yep. that eventually led into that kind of emotional openness in Ghost Teen. Um, it's not dreary necessarily. It's There's a sadness to it, but there's hope and a, a, a longing to connect. You know, it ends on a fearful note with, with Hollywood, but songs throughout even the title track have like a longing that's really quite beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I think the thing that you're talking about with Nick Cave that's really important for us to acknowledge is his experience with recovery. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll let Aaron talk more about that. Um, but I think he was really primed to make something like Ghost Teen 
Even though Skeleton Tree, I think, came out technically like right around the time he lost Arthur. I think it was about a year afterward, but the songs on it were written prior to his death. Yeah. I think like that phase in his life, obviously like losing Arthur um, is traumatic and transformative, but Nick on the red hand files and a lot of in a lot of interviews openly has talked about his experience with recovery from from drug addiction and that i think primed him to like respond with that openness um and respond with a desire to connect rather than recede um which is a really important part of recovery and so i I don't want to say like him losing his son came at the right time that's obviously not true and never will be but I think his work in recovery made it possible for him to reach out to people during his grief and like talk about it and be vulnerable and then like continue to ruminate and like share on it in the form of like making an entire album and I think like Nick Cave from 30 years ago would not have done that Um, He would have receded into hotel rooms, blacked out and made some like really angry music. And that's not like it's not that one way is better than the other. But I think that it is reflective of his evolution as an artist and as a human being, like just living in this world and how he relates to people. I think that it's impossible to understand Cave's late period without considering the Red Hand Files as like part of his body of work. And yeah, as Carly was saying, you know, like I, I'm also, you know, an, an addict and an alcoholic and in recovery and, and sober and Nick's sobriety is something that has been really uh, informative and really helpful, especially as he's opened up about it on the Red Hand File specifically and just his perspectives. I think, you know, he had built this persona of sort of this, you know, very kind of mysterious, very sort of dark figure over the course of 30, 35 years of recording music. And I gravitated a lot more towards that kind of like more boisterous, more kind of like flaunting, extroverted kind of hedonistic quality when I was a younger person, when I was like smoking and drinking and, you know, doing drugs and all that kind of stuff. And I liked it and I embraced it and I thought he was like cool as shit uh, and that his new music was getting kind of slow and whatever. And then like as it started to sort of become more apparent that that was a sign of his maturity and of his opening up as a human being, uh, I, I really fell in love with it and, and have really started to gravitate towards it more. Um, you know, part of a, a program of recovery is kind of like the idea of taking taking your bottom, taking the lowest points in your existence and your experience as a human being and giving something of yourself in return to other people and realizing that um, that grief and that, that darkness offers a, a really profound opportunity to embrace human connection and return to the world a little bit. And so Nick starting those red hand files and writing and sharing, I think is a direct response to that grief. And like Carly said, you know, like no one, no one would ever say, I certainly wouldn't that like, Oh, it's a good thing that like Nick cave lost a child, you know, much less, you know, two now actually at this point after, after last year and, and Jethro passing away, but what he's been able to do in the face of that, immense tragedy is I think something that is inspirational aspirational like the inevitability of that pain in everyone's life only shows to me that you know there, there's an opportunity for all of us to do something like that and to 
you know, step, step firmly back into like existence in the world and connection and not let those things jade you and darken you, even if you have a predisposition to doing that kind of thing, that there's a way through it in vulnerability and openness and love. And, um, yeah, that's, I think that's a, a big reason why skeleton tree. Yes. But, but absolutely ghost teen is, I think one of the things that affects me the most in his entire body and, um, I, I, that I just love so very much. I want to just quickly shift this over to Gene now to get his like, you know, as we just discussed off air, Gene, you had very limited exposure to Nick Cave. Probably the, the most limited you can be <laughs> having, having heard one album. And I, I mean this sincerely because I do think it's a good album, but I had to ask Daniel if this was a well-liked album because i liked it and i kind of figured it didn't really fit into any sort of a pop groove at all and so i thought oh okay so everyone hates this album we're gonna shit on this and it's like no it's really really nice and it reminds me of just kind of sitting on a beach and it's just waves of just tranquility the whole time even though you know it's somber tones it's really uh it's a really sunny shiny kind of album but yeah, I, I didn't know. <laughs> I kind of expected the opposite. I thought, not knowing anything, I, I don't know what you know the previous album sounds like, but I assumed it was more band-centric or musical, whereas this is very a guy with a piano and some sounds happening with it. But you know, I, I mean, I, I will certainly uh, check into the back catalog, and I don't, I don't really know exactly why I hadn't in the past, but... Um, yeah, now I I did draw maybe a strange similarity between this and what I would deem the only good David Bowie album of all time, Never Let Me Down. Uh oh. <laughs> There's some moments of that album that have that same sort of nice drawn out space. Um, and again, I mean, not really listening to what he's saying um, and just kind of hearing it as, a, as another instrument. Um, I, I do the same with this David Bowie album. So if it's really like, if he's saying horrible stuff, that's on him, not me. Um, the, the listener has turned on Eugene. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I, I can hear the uh, the RCMPs knocking at the door, but um, no, there, there's a lot of just nice space that both of those records, but more so the uh, uh, Ghost Teen, really can sort of exploit to a nice effect where if you're not paying a lot of attention, you can easily forget where you are in the song. Is this a new song? Is this the net, mm-hmm. you know, the next track, or is this, a you know, a bridge in the middle, or or whatever you would call it in that type of um, arrangement? But yeah, no, I, I I wasn't really sure what the overall uh, reception of this would have been. But yeah, I don't know. That, that's all I've got on that. But. <laughs> I love that you call this album Sunny, Gene, because I think it really is. Like, I remember talking about this with a friend at some point and using the word resplendent because it feels kind of like shimmering and like even the album artwork, like you're drawn to it because it's it's a beautiful scene. And then you listen to the album and you're like, oh, I, I get why this is the album artwork. So I'm just going to have to look at see what that looks like here. It's like a really gorgeous sort of forest. It it almost reminds me of like um 
like 19th century Gainsborough painting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just like every color and there's like light and, you know, fauna everywhere. Um, it's like a really stark contrast to a lot of the um, the album artwork and the images he evokes with his music that came prior. That is something that he communicates really well through this album, which is that like it's not that he's not saying grief isn't sad or like painful. Like he's moving through pain in the album. You can hear it um, and feel it. But he's also, uh, as you said, Gene, like hopeful. And I think that's like, I don't want to like fall back on the trope of like, we contain multitudes, but like we do. And like grief and like the human experience um, and grief is something that ties every human together like doesn't matter where you are or who you are like death is a part of life and losing someone is a part of being alive he reminds us that grief is really human and like actually like really grounding and connective and that is where I think that sunniness comes from because that's the beauty of of being a human being is like the ability to connect with another person because of a shared experience, even if those experiences might look a little bit different. And he says it explicitly in some lyrics in the songs, but I don't even think those matter. I think that as you move through the album and you sort of hear these songs where he's more ruminative and he's thinking about his alienation from other people, and then you move into other songs that feel more um, like they're open morning and then songs that feel like they're angry or um, the stuff that feels really hopeful, like all of that is a part of being alive. And so he's doing the thing that he's always done with his music, which is like make music about like the human experience. He's just doing it in a way that I think is reflective of the experiences he's had in his life and how those have matured him. I wanted to talk specifically about one song that I think is gorgeous, which is Waiting For You. It has like two and a half verses. Like it's very short. Um, the, the lyricism on this album too, like you don't quite pick up on it when you're listening just because every song runs into like that like five, six minute territory and then like 12 to 15 minutes on the back end. But there's only, there's like these refrains that go on for, you know, three, four minutes yes. at a time in all of these songs. That's what I love about Waiting For You. Like, there's a handful of sentences that make up the song, right? But um, it's this really extensive piece um, because he does sort of play in these refrains. And I love Waiting For You because it's a song about, this is how I interpreted it. It is a song about the alienation and sort of like frustration that you feel when you're grieving in your desire to like, want to connect to another person want to make someone else happy who is grieving with you but the inability to do so and feeling like you're on a different planet than other people um and he doesn't say any of that stuff but that is what comes up for me when i hear that song and it's because he leaves this room for you to like spend time with a refrain and think about it and interpret it and then it's like what gene said like you start to hear things that aren't there they're not technically in the song but they are being evoked um and i think waiting for you is is a track that does that really beautifully adding to the lyrics there's three that i thought of that kind of evoke what i really like like i he's, he's among my favorite songwriters and 
he can paint a picture or, you know, in the case of Red Right Hand, write like a book's worth of notes and lore and then turn it into a, a rock song, which then gets reinterpreted dozens of times thanks to a British crime show. Mm-hmm. It's a very good British crime show for the record. <laughs> I give you that. I give you that. I, I did feel like whoever did the um, audio design may be the best friend I've never made. <laughs> it shows all my favorite records to pull like season three had amnesiac on it and i was like hell yeah buddy (laughs) but uh the ones that really resonate with me and it might just be where i am now versus where i was when i first started listening to his work uh mercy seat has a place in my heart as this visceral powerful song that i enjoy covering when i have an opportunity and We've we've worked on a very fun, fast, um, and and violent as violent as we can cover, which comes at a point in the set list where my voice is already blown out by one of the songs that you listened to earlier today. But the really simple ones, the really simple lines in Nick Cave songs are the ones that really got to me. And like I'll I'll throw in some from from other records first, like uh on Hallelujah. There's a there's a line where he, he I think the story is like he's he's elderly and he's leaving a home on this trek where he doesn't quite know where he's going and he just sees a cow and the line that he says like I, I passed a cow and the cow was brown and it was like I mean I I got this reading a lot of red hand notes too is anyone who writes or creates or shares an idea wants to express you know like that I was here I existed I matter I see things and this is how I connect with the world. And when he sings that line, he sings it with such a deep longing, as if he's trying to make sense of it. Like it's 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 something very, very straightforward and simple, but quite moving. Uh, moving on to uh, the Boatman's Call record, there's the song, uh, Are You the One I'm Waiting For? Mm-hmm. Or I've Been Waiting For. I'm getting all of his song titles like fucked up on here. I'm going to acknowledge that for, for the listener. Um, but the lyric is, I think of you in motion and just how close you are getting. Like it comes after this sort of rumination on a Christ-like figure and then immediately shifts into somebody who like who's gone, who you don't know necessarily why. Like you could you could argue it's PJ Harvey because that's the record that came out after PJ Harvey's breakup. But mm-hmm. it, it could be absolutely anything. He had children, I think, at that point, too, who he had not seen in a while. And, and just hearing him just describe the thought of somebody existing, you're just moving. You're not... You could be breathing. You could be walking across the street. Just you were there. And then finally, in a, on Skeleton Tree, which I'm not a line that I'm not sure whether it was improvised or written well in advance. I'm sawn in half, and all the stars are splattered across the ceiling. Just these these images of uh, you know the universe just contained within a room um, in a song that feels it feels like when he when he was talking in the movie about how. Uh, Time feels elastic and how you can keep stretching, getting far, far from a moment that snaps right back to you. It feels like that's what he's getting at in the song. And sorry to go on this tangent about like <laughs> lyrics, but on Ghost Teen, the simplest lyrics were the ones that like, I shouldn't have been listening to this on an exercise bike at the gym because I would hear something like, there's nothing wrong with loving things you can't hold in your hand and feeling like I know exactly what he's singing about and just being ripped in half in this very public place. I mean, those are the things that, that have always jumped out to me despite his ability to describe a scene and paint a scene and write and you know, novelistic tendencies of his youth. I'm not sure if this is tied to what you were saying, Aaron, earlier about like him opening up and becoming more expressive through Red Hand Files, which 
earlier in an earlier episode, I was a lot more dismissive of him than I am now. I think at the time I thought people are turning to Nick Cave as some kind of internet dad and asking him his feelings on like cancel culture or <laughs> Dave Chappelle. And I was like, I don't give a shit about this. I think Red Hand Files, I'll make this assertion boldly, are instrumental to understanding more about him as a musician. No pun intended. Um, I think that I I understand the kind of revulsion of like, he's like a dear Sally or whatever. He's not, <laughs> right? Like he gets a ton of questions. He's really intentional about the ones he decides to answer. And I have felt closer to him and his music in reading those than I ever have before. And they're also incredibly helpful like so often just like practically speaking i'll read something that he's written in response to a question particularly the stuff that people write him where they are sharing something deeply personal with him and he handles it with such care and i i leave i you know i finish his letter and i i feel okay like i feel comforted um even when he's talking about things that are really painful he has just such a beautiful pen and manages to articulate things that are cosmic and nebulous and big and and inarticulable and he does it handedly all the time and he blows me away with his ability to do so and he does that on in his music as well um i i know a couple of other people who are like I'm ready for him to like not be like this guy anymore. Um, and I'm not like, I think <laughs> this is like, this is a beautiful like expression of where he is in his life. And I am really grateful for the work he puts into Red Hand Files because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of like him pouring his soul out to strangers. Um, and I'm sure he gets a lot of like fucking weird responses from people or weird questions. And he like continues to open himself up. And I think that's really beautiful. And I find it to be incredibly grounding and palliative in like the current landscape of horrors that we exist in. You just reminded me of the the question that one guy wrote that Cave ended up roasting consistently, at least for, for the next letter too. It was a guy who just said, don't you hate how many fat lesbians listen to your music? <laughs> that letter didn't seem to go over very well with Cave. It wouldn't, would it? No. No. <laughs> You see what you like in, in the music and you see yourself in that and you assume that there's, you know, your views and your 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 life is validated and, and reflected in the person who made that. And this guy wasn't the only one, but he was definitely uh, an opportunity to yeah. disprove that notion. Yeah, I, I think the thing with the Red Hand Files is like, it, I mean, they're not all bangers, right? Uh, like there are certainly ones where it's like, oh, this is... Okay, an interesting one that you chose to answer or, you know, a one-off opportunity to, like, promote the the work that he did on his friend's film Blonde, you know, by saying it's his favorite movie ever made uh, in, like, one word, um, which... I think he's... I, I know you love Blonde. I, love Blonde. I I like Blonde, too, you know, despite the sort of, you know, the discourse cycle around it. But there are fun ones in there along with, you know, these moments of, like, a guy who is very in touch with sort of a spiritual component of his existence and about and knows something about humanity there's also ones where he's like talking about band merch you know and like whether or not it's ethical or not he's like i'm writing this like with a pair of radiohead socks on right now like you I know i love that one um so <laughs> yeah so they're fun you know sometimes too and and he's I, hilarious by the way he, he can be very very funny and i think that it's uh it's nice to see those moments too of his humanity because i think it is 
stuff that kind of deliberately and in a very focused way undermines some of the mystique of like Nick Cave in a former iteration. And some people may have a problem with that. Some people may find it undermining of their own perception of who Nick Cave is. But personally, I think it's like, it's nice to know that like this guy occasionally like goes through the McDonald's drive through you know, like this person who's like written these very profound things that like are meaningful to me and has this sort of like, you know, totemic sort of quality in my mind you know that he gets up in the morning and sometimes back hurts and stuff you know like that's that's nice to to be reminded of i think sometimes i uh i apologize for this um my dog is just crying at the door and i'm just gonna let him in so we might get on the back end some sounds of him just being a little rascal that's totally fine no that is that is okay we love pets oh wait i'm just gonna quickly pan the camera down so you can't he's a hi bud oh hey malta 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 (laughs) what a cutie okay yeah he's just he doesn't like being on camera um but he's yeah he's a goofball he's really he's really sweet but when he when there's a stranger like entering in the apartment or the hallway outside, if he's tired, he'll be an asshole. If he's uh you know, if he's excited to go out, he might just walk up to them and like boop them in the back of their knee Aww. with his nose. Where is he? Here, I'll, I'll do this again. Because <laughs> you missed it. This is great material. This is gonna go in the Good. final episode. Oh, oh Malta. He's very cute. It's my little guy. It's got like a little white patch Aww. on his chin. He's he's a he's a nice he's a elderly statesman distinguished gray (laughs) yeah he's one Ah, all right um i think we had a bit of a gap which yeah whatever um but aaron you mentioned before that there's an argument to be made that you do not need to know much about nick cave in order to really understand or embrace ghost team i'd love to hear what you have to say on that yeah i mean it's weird to say that like an album written like a 68 minute sprawling you know very sparse kind of album about the myriad feelings uh that come up in the experience of grief after the death of a child uh is also like maybe nick's most immediate and accessible record but i think that it's that's actually kind of true i I, you know the, the guy can write a hook he's written plenty of catchy and and cool tunes before you know people hear red right hand and they're like immediately in it like oh that's a that's a cool vibe i I dig that i feel like i'm in like kind of a smoky burlesque show kind of atmosphere or whatever but i think that he has a certain as carly said impenetrability that is part of the facade of nick cave i think there's sort of like a you know, like a mystique of this kind of dark carnivalesque figure at, at, you know, at at the the root of some of Cave's earlier stuff that is a certain vibe, you know, like I I think that people who aren't kind of keyed into that sound may find themselves distanced by it. He has those very kind of like long narrative songs on murder ballads and Boatman's Call. And I even think of like the Carney on Your Funeral, My Trial, which is, it's a great song, but the first time I heard it, I it was like nine and a half minutes. What the fuck is this? Like, what is going on here? I'm, I'm, I'm 19. I don't get this. Like what's going on. But all you really need to know about Ghost Teen is like, maybe just a little bit. That's like, this is a, an, an album that's about loss. And maybe you don't even need to know that you can learn it across like the course of the record. All you really need to know is like if you've ever felt or experienced a profound loss of someone or something in your life, there will be something here that resonates emotionally with you, like in terms of the the landscape of it or in the lyrics, you'll find something to hook into. And yeah, I just, I, I don't know what it is about this record. There is like a, 
there's a magnitude to it, but there's also like a very gentle kind of holding quality to all of it. I'm going to go on a tangent myself here, but I think specifically in terms of like great musical statements about death in the 21st century, A Crow Looked at Me, the the Phil Elvrum work by Mount Erie, I guess is, is his moniker. Um, are you familiar with that one, Danny or Gene? Uh, I'm not. No. Okay. So uh, you, you might actually like some of his earlier work. He does a lot of like kind of lo-fi experimentation in terms of his recording and, and sound and things like that. But what he, he was the microphones for a long time and then became Mount Erie. Uh, but he lost his wife to pancreatic cancer. And in about a six week period, almost like immediately after her death, picked up his guitar and a lot of her instruments and recorded this album uh, that's very meandering and very almost sort of like journalistic in the way that it, it, it's uh, written lyrically and very sparse just in, in the room that they shared together in her absence. And you can hear things echoing off the walls. And it is a very devastating, hyper-specific like moment in a cycle of grief and in the course of losing somebody that is about just like that moment of like the chaos and cacophony of thought the things that they share together the things that he's lost and doesn't have anymore the absence and like the overwhelming feeling of it the child they have together all this stuff is there but again very sort of you know like a needle point of of a kind of feeling and moment in grief and ghost teen is one that from song to song minute to minute is about kind of the sprawl of all of those things and also i think the continuity of that grief and the way that it sort of carries with you and lives alongside you over the course of years, over the course of a lifetime. Both great albums, but something about Ghosting, I think, is less about bringing you into the pain and more about asking you to come alongside someone and embrace the universality of loss as a hopeful message rather than something that like leads us further into the descent. Death is one of the few things that all of us will know and experience over the course of our existences. And if that's the case, then we're never going to be alone in that grief. And that to me is like a really moving and really rewarding kind of thought and perspective on something very scary and very terrible. And so, yeah, I, I think that there's just something there that captures like, a, 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 as we said before, like a sunniness, a warmth and an embrace that some of Cave's other music doesn't quite get to. I think that, the immediacy that Aaron is talking about, I would characterize as, I think this album is less specifically about grief. Like that is certainly like the language and the space and the emotional like frequency that it's playing in. But I think what this album is really about and what grief is really about, and I've come to under understand this in the last month or two, is the inevitability of pain that comes with loving someone, but how like miraculous and beautiful and necessary it is to love someone. And that's the through line that I have throughout the whole album. And I think what connects all of the songs, whether they're angry or more ruminative um, or sort of more transcendent and choral, that is like what I think Nick like is about right now like in his life and I don't presume to like know how he feels or you know how he would characterize his existence in this moment but a lot of what I read from him and hear from him is about the pain that comes with loving someone 
whether that's because you lose them in some way or because they hurt you or all of the above, but also that that is like a very necessary part of existence and being human. I was reading a review of Ghost Teen and this review cites a Guardian article where Nick mentions that he had grown tired of narrative. If you understand that, I think you can understand I think you can understand Ghost Teen and a lot of what he's doing in the Red Hand Files and even in Blonde, frankly, uh, which is a separate conversation we do not need to get into. Um, I think you can understand a lot of that uh, more fully. Um, And he describes in this interview that he just now has this sort of collage of ideas and images and lines in his head. And it's less about writing a story in a song like the carney right um and more about like evoking a feeling which comes back to what we discussed at the beginning of this conversation and that he does that through this kind of patchwork of things that are living in his his head and in his heart and i think that that's like a really beautiful evolution of like how his music has shifted over the years i think that covers a lot of ground except for one thing that i do like you, you've mentioned this to me, Carly. The thing that jumped out to me in the years following Ghost Teen and the Red Hand Files, like especially that letter about grief, was seeing an attempted, for lack of a better term, memification on that letter. Like the concept of grief being uh, um, an expression of love. Like it's something, it's part of the deal, but it's loving somebody opens yourself up to that. And then seeing that um, concept really driven into the ground by WandaVision, mm-hmm. any episode of Star Trek Discovery, which is one of the worst things I've ever watched. And it's been really depressing to be a Star Trek fan. I think you're not alone in that <laughs> uh, in that assertion. You don't like Stacey Abrams being the president of the universe? I think it's lame for anyone to be a celebrity politician. Like, I think so. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> it sucks fucking so sucks. It's so dumb. To bring it back to um, memification, like I remember when that WandaVision episode came out and they mentioned grief and it's the quote from Paul uh, Bettany, uh, his character um, just being driven to the ground on Twitter. Just looking at it thinking like this is a dumbed down version of something Nick Cave wrote and like built up to and like in his letter earned quite beautifully. And the letter itself is worth sharing, but to see Marvel try and like win points off of it socially was disturbing and upsetting yeah that's their that's their bag that's that's what they're all about um and how they make their money and it works on a lot of people um i think you're you're talking about a a broader dynamic in like not just the production of media but how audiences consume media and art which is that like it needs to be memeable it needs to be like something that is a commodity that can be reproduced and reshared and digested quickly and easily. Uh, And that's like antithetical to like what makes a lot of art good. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we all know that we're on this podcast talking about it. But it also makes me think of Dear Sweet Lovely, I adore her, but oh my God, Jamie Curtis saying over and over and over again that the Halloween movie was about trauma. (laughs) Trauma, trauma. It's about trauma. 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 And, like, it's not her fault. She has to go to those uh, press days where she gets asked the same question over and over and over again. It's less about her and what Mm. she said and more that 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 press day and the fact that, like, it became a thing on the Internet, this supercut of her saying it's about trauma 
that's kind of really a very literal manifestation of like how we interact with feelings and experiences that are really painful and complicated. They are super cut together into this like repeatable thing that we can like shovel down our gullets and turn into a joke because that's easier and tidier than doing the other stuff that can't be done online, right? Has to be done in the meat world where you cry in a bathroom for three hours. Like that's not a meme. That's life. And I think you're right. I think like I've seen I've seen a couple of things and this is a perfect transition into what we're about to talk about. But I've seen a couple of things with Nick Cave in particular that like feel like they're being abstracted and turned into something that is like a wholly corrupted version of what he originally made. And with him specifically, I get really fucking pissed because he's so actively trying to work against that impetus and work against that like market force to like turn something into a commodity that when I see it happen, I'm just like, these are the most cynical people on the planet doing this. So with that in mind, uh, what did you think about the chat GP song? Um, I thought Nick Cave's response to it was the fucking best dish track of the century. I said as much. He just <laughs> fucking flamed Mark. Uh, poor who, Mark. No, not poor Mark. You can't know who Nick Cave is and approach him and be like, I made this uh, artificial intelligence song for you and not know that he's going to eat your sure. face. I mean, to be clear, though, at the beginning, he says that he has received dozens of those. So yes. Mark just happens to be the one that he singled out. So, Mark which is was why the I last say straw. Poor Mark. Yeah. I don't, well, you and I can land in different spots on I mean, that. Mark's he got probably, what, he, he, what was coming to him. He's a little idiot for doing that, but. Well, now you know. you're putting words in my mouth. <laughs> Anyways, uh, what I, I, I don't want to talk about the song because the song isn't worth talking about. What I want to talk about is Nick Cave's response to it. And Nick Cave's response to it is as incisive, thoughtful, articulate, and utterly just like incendiary as like anything he's ever written and just like gorgeous. And he expresses so many things about AI and like the promise scare quotes of AI that I've been feeling that like he just said outright. And I was like, it was really resonating with me. I want to read, if you'll permit me one uh, part of it that I think is beautiful um, and important. So he says something about, about AI and chat, uh, GPT specifically that I think is really important for us to like hold with us as we're interacting with like apes and whatever other fucking shit on the internet. He says chat GPT's melancholy role is that it is destined to imitate and can never have an authentic human experience, no matter how devalued and inconsequential the human experience may in time become. And of course, he's referring to the commodification of the human experience and AI's role in that. But then what he goes on to say, which I think is the point of his letter, is why songwriting and art making, broadly speaking, is wholly distinct from that thing that AI is doing. Songs arise out of suffering, by which I mean they are predicated upon the complex internal human struggle of creation. And well, as far as I know, algorithms don't feel. Data doesn't suffer. Chat GPT has no inner being. It has been nowhere. It has endured nothing. 
it has not had the audacity to reach beyond its limitations, and hence it doesn't have the capacity for a shared transcendent experience, as it has no limitations from which it can transcend. What I loved about that is it made me think about Ghostine. It made me think about how he must have written that album and made those songs and that music is that like it arose from suffering but it also forced him to reach beyond what he felt were his limitations and come into this new space that um was transcendent and healing a computer's not gonna fucking do that ever so yeah i could talk about that particular letter and like nick cave's perspective on it for hours but i won't do that that's what i have to say about it the union guy in me kind of hears it as very similar to like going up to a you know a cashier and being like how do you feel about these fucking robots right he he responds to it in a way that's very much of his character at the same time it's asshole investors who own or work for nebulous companies creating an inferior product that then becomes ubiquitous um and that's my way of using large sounding words that i don't <laughs> normally use in my vocabulary to pretend to sound smart no you you totally nailed it and and what i love about nick's response is if anything he asserts for me that there is no world in which those things will come to dominate in any meaningful way. Like Nick Cave reminds us why those things will never actually grab hold of anything. And and they may sort of saturate the market, but we are going to be malnourished and like people know what art is and they feel it. And that is a stronger thing than like neoliberal capitalism, potentially, who knows? It's just funny how... The AI stuff, and I, I'm going to quote a friend really quickly. Actually, I thought about this while we were reading Nick's uh, letter. Uh, a friend of our show, Peter Raleigh, who's on Twitter as well. Freaking love Peter. He's great. Uh, has been on our program before. Will again. Very smart. Very funny dude. Historian, uh, you know. Uh, but he said yesterday, and I don't even know what, what spawned it, but he said, watching AI discourse on here is darkly funny because three weeks ago, we were all like, this stuff sucks, LMAO. And now we have started seriously contemplating the Butlerian Jihad which if you're not familiar is a, a textual part of Dune in which uh, humanity revolted against all artificial intelligence and computers <laughs> uh, and, and like basically took itself back uh, partially to like the stone age just because computers had gotten out of hand. <laughs> that is the promise of humanity. That is the promise of human will winning out over, you know, anything artificial or driven by capital. I have to believe that it's the only way to make it through these these days. <laughs> is it more or less insulting that things are literally uh, AI generated now versus 95% of the shit that's ever been put out that was still just formulaic and to, to make a profit? Ashley Simpson, for example. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Or, or, or maybe I'm showing my age now. I don't know. I used to use Alta Vista. <laughs> you know, a lot of the music that's being like forced down everyone's throat, it might as well be AI. Um, and just because a living person is behind it, oh, actually, I think it makes it worse. But um, yeah, just wanted to get your take on that. That's a really good question. That Jean. is a good question. I think what you're making me realize is that like AI made art is another manifestation of what happens the longer we go on in capitalism, which is that all the curtains start to fall away and like the things 
that have always been there are now like out in the open for consumers to see. Whereas like capitalism's whole deal is like we like obfuscate as much as we can about production so that you just consume and you don't have to think about how something is made. But that's not possible past a certain point when you're in this sort of like high arc of an imploding economic system. And I think like AI is just sort of like a literal concretization, a literal manifestation of what you're describing, which is that there's been a formula behind music making and art making for a long time, music in particular. And it's been because of the same thing that manifested AI, which is the market forces determining the necessity to like make something that's like quick turn, low effort, most return on investment. That's been fundamental to how uh, we operate under capitalism for as long as it's been around. And I think AI is just like the next iteration of that. But you're right. It It's like reminding us that this has actually been a part of like the music industry specifically for a very long time. It's all sort of throwaway stuff. I mean, it's like one one yes. unused plastics yeah. or it, it's it's all the same kind of shit. Yeah. yeah and it's like, sh- I mean, the short term return is all that matters. Right. And that's why something like A.I., and Marvel movies, frankly. Yeah. That's why those things exist, right? Because like you make this thing, you you make it like with a ton of commodified elements that are easily reproducible. Um, and you blast the hell out of it and then you get, you know, sixty billion dollars back or whatever. And mm-hmm. you just keep doing that over and over again. And the movie itself doesn't have to have longevity. It doesn't have to make an impact. It doesn't have to make you feel anything. It just has to like get you in a seat and then it's done its job. Yeah. I don't think that, you know, I guess you're you're touching on a, a point there, Gene, where it's like I'm not sure that uh, you know, AI generated stuff is any worse than the cynical kind of capitalist drive of of all of that formulaic music. It's just the automated process that as Marxists, we like already know and like informs like our understanding of the way that this thing happens. And and we talk about this on our show all the time. Like Carly mentioned, you know, like it's it's the reason why we are, you know, we kind of talk a lot about like the slow like degradation of quality of things in in the modern era and under late capitalism in film specifically. And, and you know, it's funny to think of it like in context of like why nobody thought that like an Avatar sequel would make $2 billion as well, you know, like for better or worse. I know it's still, you know, money going up the ladder to like Disney and Jim Cameron and all that. But, you know, like he's, he at least made something that people want to go and see, you know, twice, three times, four times. And I don't think people understood that anymore. I think that there's a lot of people who are like, that's just not how movies are made anymore. Why would anyone want to go see it for the experience more than one time? They've gotten all the necessary information from it. They've gotten all the things that it can possibly offer. Like there's nothing else to mine from this in the experience. So you'll only make however much money you make in that first week of this thing existing. And then after that, it'll be long forgotten. And who cares? That's not what it's about anymore. And so that like commercialized process, it does. I mean, it sucks in general. Um, I'll, I'll defend Ashley Simpson only in so far as she, <laughs> she is responsible for a, a transcendent moment in her own career. And I think in the, uh, in terms of like longevity, the thing that will outlive any other, 
uh, note she's ever played or sung, which is the moment that she was caught lip syncing on uh, Saturday Night Live, which I think was a oh my god, which I was totally... like an emblematic moment. I think of that like commercial product with no spine to it, with no actual like substance behind it, uh, where she just ended up like you know doing a hoedown dance like on stage because because they missed the mark on and the yes. music too. So that so that was that was an important thing. That so happened. I mean you know. Infamy, maybe, but at the very least, she's responsible for something worthwhile in our existences, which is the moment that all of that like commercial filth like totally fucked up and like put itself on display for all of us to laugh at. So I guess the reason I brought it up is because I'm a I, I don't want to jump too fast to uh, saying that any AI generated uh, art form has you know necessarily has these inherent evils. It's it's just you know, the intention behind the people controlling yes, it. So if you're absolutely. trying to make something that can go on a lunchbox or on a backpack, chances are, you know, it's uh, kind of naturally evil. But if you just let computers create some art and, you know, just for the sake of it, um, I think that's really kind of neat. And I mean, it's not that far from, especially in music, because there's so much processing and effects and all that sort of thing. It is just a natural next step and then you don't even have to have bandmates like Danny wouldn't have to deal with me all the time yeah. you know you know I, I think a lot of it has to do with the intention behind it yes. and if you're trying to uh make the the fast buck or you know then it doesn't even matter if the quality of the thing is good yes um, I'm gonna push back on that Gene. Yeah, I've tried really hard to get Dolly many to make a, vi a, a picture of Jordan Peterson playing basketball with Osama bin Laden <laughs> and it failed and I don't care how many times I had to prompt it to get different results. It's just they were not playing fucking basketball. <laughs> so that's evil. I, uh, well, there's a cut of people that have actually been using Dolly and, and AI art generators in a way that I think is really interesting, which is to comment on AI art generator mm -hmm. and, and to actually like engage with the questions that it brings up. I find that exercise really fascinating. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to be gained there. But I think most people aren't, you know, approaching it that way. They're not like approaching it with this idea of like, can I maybe use this to explore something dark and perhaps sinister about like this current moment? And like, maybe that is useful. Um, I think a lot of people are just using it to like, put it on backpacks or whatever whatever else i think there's a genuine kind of oppositional relationship between genuine art and commercialization to a certain extent i think that there is a way to make like you know very populist and commercial and successful art and and has you know elements that are still challenging and, and worthy and everything but i think there's always a little bit of it that needs to go beyond what is sort of like acceptable and totally palatable to everyone broadly speaking and so like you're right you know like making something with ai as a commentary on it or or as an expression of like the uniqueness of the format is something that I think an artistic mind would consider. I think back like even to like Eno doing like discrete music, you know, and like putting these different like processes and, and different algorithms through his synths and whatever came out on the other end was not really under his control. And it was this beautiful, interesting thing, but it's the commercial element of it. It is the, how can we monetize this thing? And I think so many of the people who are running AI, who are doing AI are only thinking about 
let's let's consider the ways in which we can monetize this thing and make it a business and and that i think is completely antithetical to the the possibilities of what it could be in any interesting way i think that's a great point to leave things on aaron carly where can folks find you yeah, uh, we are on the internet uh, at Hit Factory Pod. You can listen to our show wherever you listen to podcasts, um, Apple, Spotify, everything in between. And we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod, where you can subscribe to the show for as little as $5 per month. You get uh, biweekly bonus content, some occasional bonus episodes and, and write-ups and things like that there. And a good way to support the show if you are able to. Great. Thank you so much, guys, for coming on. This was really fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah, our pleasure. Really great conversation. Really appreciate it. And flattered that you care about anything I have to say, let alone <laughs> stuff about Nick Cave. <laughs>